0: Ella Kate Maurice, and you are listening to More Than Child's Play with your host, my mommy Lacey Morici, and my aunt Nicole Surgeon. They're authors, therapists, and most importantly, mommies. And man, can they talk! So sit back and relax and learn from their village. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to More Than Child's Play podcast. This is Lacey Morisi, co-owner of Milestones and Miracles, early intervention speech language pathologist, and I am, again, flying solo without Nicole, but I'm very excited tonight to have on our podcast Kelly Benson Boat. Kelly is... Hi, everyone, and welcome back to More Than Child's Play podcast. This is Lacey Marisi, co-owner of Milestones and Miracles, early intervention speech-language pathologist. And I am, again, flying solo without Nicole, but I'm very excited tonight to have on our podcast Kelly benson Boat. Kelly is a speech-language pathologist also, and she is certified in orofacial myology. So we wanted to invite her on to talk about orofacial myology, orofacial myofunctional therapy, um, and that whole world that is kind of new to a lot of us in our field. And so she can kind of introduce us to the topic and get us um, on the same page with what's happening and abreast of some new information. So Kelly, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lacey. It's a pleasure to be here awesome kelly and i also work together um, in the west virginia birth to three program in the state of west virginia so i have the pleasure of learning from her both as a colleague and a friend so i wanted to again invite her on to share her knowledge in this area with you all our audience so kelly is the owner of pediatric feeding and speech solutions in leesburg virginia she received her bachelor's of science degree in speech pathology and audiology from West Virginia University, and um, she hold, has a master's degree in speech pathology from Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Kelly's worked in private practice, outpatient and inpatient hospital settings, long-term care, hospice, schools, and she currently also works in early intervention. After working with many children in a variety of settings and after having children of her own, Kelly found a love in the area of pediatric feeding. Kelly is a certified member of the American Speech Language Hearing Association, and she is a certified orofacial myologist with the International Association of Orofacial Myology. And she's a presenter for the Lactation Education Resources Training Programs. Kelly loves being a speech and language pathologist and is committed to using the most up to date clinical practices and approaches in her therapy. And she holds professional licenses in Maryland, Virginia, and West Virginia. Can you explain to us what exactly is orofacial myology? Sure. Orofacial
1: myology is really a, a specialized therapy approach um, that's used to correct the orofacial muscular imbalances, uh, including the resting posture of the tongue the tongue position and movements of the tongue during the swallow. Um, I'll abbreviate it for OMDs, uh, just to be a little bit shorter there, but OMDs can affect the development and the shape of the face. Um, They can impact breathing and have impact on the airway as well as one's bite and the dental alignment.
0: Okay, so when a kiddo comes to you and I assume you screen or evaluate them to identify whether or not they have an orofacial myofunctional disorder, an OMD, correct? Yes. And then, if you, you know, assess them and they, in fact, are diagnosed with an OMD, what is therapy for these kiddos?
1: So the way I get the referrals is is kind of interesting. Sometimes I'm getting referrals directly from say an ENT or an orthodontist or a dentist uh, because of some identified problems that they have seen on their end, such as with the the alignment of the teeth or breathing issues, or maybe they have identified some speech issues that they think um, are all connected. So that is one type of referral that comes directly to me as um, for an evaluation for an oral facial myology um, evaluation. Other times I'm uh, getting into OMDs with kids through regular speech and language referrals or uh, feeding referrals. So they're coming to me with say a speech problem or a feeding problem. And then in the process of that evaluation, I'm uh, identifying some of the more specific areas of OMDs that we're talking about today. Um, Some of the things that I'm looking for in those evaluations include, or, or some of the red flags are kind of, so if they come in and they have an open mouth posture and the tongue is laying low and forward in the mouth, that is a red flag that something is going on you might be able to see that tongue forward or as some people refer to it as a tongue thrust or reverse swallow during their eating or drinking or even swallowing saliva. OMDs uh, are also related to tongue ties in many instances. And then a couple other things that can be related uh, are kids who have been thumb suckers or pacifier users for extended periods of time, and or they could have nasal uh, or pharyngeal airway restrictions, such as enlarged tonsils or enlarged adenoids that are affecting the airway that then in turn affects how they're breathing, and then that open mouth posture, and then um, a variety of events from that.
0: Okay. So you're looking at the kiddo kind of looking for the that tongue thrust, that possible you mentioned a tongue tie and that is when that piece of skin underneath of our tongue is too tight, correct?
1: Yes, and and that also is kind of a hot topic these days. Um tongue ties, restricted frenulums or frenums depending on uh who you're listening to. Um one of the terms that's being used now is tots or tethered oral tissues is that they're being referred to. So you can have um, a restriction in the frenulum underneath the tongue. You can have a restriction of the upper lip, which is a labial uh, restriction like um, on the upper lip between the two central incisors, the two front teeth. Mm -hmm. And then you can also have buckle ties on the sides of the mouth, along the gums, too.
0: Oh, so so the cheeks actually can be held in too tightly to the gum line. Correct. Okay. See, I've already learned something new. <laughs> Didn't know that one. Good. Okay. So so a tongue thrust. So tell us, just you know, briefly, a t- if a child has a tongue thrust. So that's when they are pushing their tongue forward and sometimes even as far as out of their mouth when they go to swallow, or they have that resting posture of a tongue-forward presentation when you see them, open mouth, tongue-forward posture. What kind of issues does that cause for a kiddo?
1: So when we see that tongue resting um, between the teeth or what looks like pressure behind the teeth, um, the, the tongue is just too far forward. So oftentimes we'll also see... Uh, speech articulation errors in those kiddos too and some of the common errors are s's so or lisping Um, Mm -hmm. you can have frontal lisping or lateral lisping Uh, sometimes we're having difficulties with r's and l's that that's where the speech issues can be involved too but what happens when during a tongue thrust when they're swallowing saliva or liquids or food is that instead of the tongue finding its place on the hard palate for the swallow to then push the food or the liquid or the saliva back for the swallow during the swallow well it actually can happen before during or after the swallow the tongue will kind of shoot forward or thrust forward instead of doing the um muscle action backwards towards the back of the throat for the swallow
0: okay and then i'm guessing it's kind of the opposite then when you have a kiddo that you identify as having a tongue tie when your tongue is is tied down too tightly to the floor of your mouth then it's not able to push forward enough sometimes or even it can't even get back far enough again to propel a swallow or
1: so it, it depends and it depends on the severity of the restriction but oftentimes when kids yes you're right in that sometimes it can't propel the tongue can't propel back far enough during the swallow so I've actually seen um kids have some coughing issues with liquids in particular, and one of the, the, the culprit was a tongue tie. Mm-hmm. And so also it could be anchored down on the floor of the mouth, which impacts its position. So it could be too far forward, actually, okay, because of the tongue restriction. And like, as you said, it might not be able to reach up as far as it needs to, to the hard palate. And one of the important things about, to know about tongue ties or restricted frenulums is that you can have that restriction at the front of the tongue. So an anterior tongue tie, which, you know, is pretty easy to see, those are like the really uh common pictures that you see on the internet or the real obvious ones where a kid tries to stick out their tongue and it's notched in the front it looks like a heart in the front and it's really really restricted and you can't miss that so that's more of an anterior tongue tie what's trickier i feel is as you get further back in the mouth and it's what we're referring to as a posterior tongue tie And so that's just further back. You have to be able, you have to feel for that. You can't usually just see that. Uh, You have to look at the shape of the tongue and and different things during evaluation. But the important thing with that, and this comes up in articulation um, with older kids or adults, even with feeding and particularly with breastfeeding in infants is what's important to know is that the mid part of the tongue so where the mid to the back part of the tongue, where the posterior tie would be, it also needs to reach up to the hard palate and make contact so that the infant can maintain a latch on, on the breast and, and the nipple and so forth. So there's a couple, you know, kind of different types of tongue ties, but and it's not just um, just the front of the tongue lifting up. We do have to consider the whole, the body of the tongue as well.
0: Okay. Gotcha. And and I mean, so we're talking about tongue ties or tots, tethered oral tissues and tongue thrusting, but that's just two of the things that you're assessing and evaluating for. There's other things that you're also looking for when you see these kids. Those are just the two that that interested me the most. So I wanted you to explain a little bit further. Um, So, okay. So we've identified it. Let's say that you've identified a kiddo as having an orofacial myofunctional disorder, and um, then you're going to start doing therapy. So is there a particular age of children that this type of therapy is indicated for or most effective with? Um, I'm not even sure what the therapy involves. So can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yes, that is an important factor because there's some confusion out there when you're reading um, some of the posts and some of the groups and people are talking about oral facial myology in young kids and in infants. Uh, but really, oral facial myology um, or myofunctional therapy really is for kids, you um, <sighs> youngest, probably four, although I have several four year olds that I've seen that that are still unable to do this type of therapy, Um, because this therapy, it's not a passive kind of therapy, it has to be active, we have to have an active participant, they have to have the cognitive still skills. To follow the directions to do the exercises and so forth. So it really has to, they have to be aware of what's going on and be able to follow through and because we need to generalize a lot of the, the exercises and the skills, of course. So really four is what people consider usually the, the youngest. Uh, and like I said, some kids even at that age aren't real appropriate yet. Um, but then it can range from four to 100 or all throughout the lifespan. So these uh, issues and deficits can be identified throughout the lifespan and therapy uh, can be initiated at any time. And so this the the specific type of therapy approach that we're talking about today is not really appropriate or it's the wrong term to use for you know infants, preschoolers, kids
0: under four. Okay. And the therapy itself is exercises, would you say, just to, to work on strength, to work on proper placement, resting posture, you're kind of reestablishing, for example, like with the tongue thrust, you kind of have to reestablish where the tongue should be resting in the mouth or build strength of certain muscles in the oral structure to support, you know, proper placement. So, I mean, it's strengthening exercises sometimes.
1: It is, um, it does involve a lot of different types of exercises and things to do to get to the awareness. Uh, So I have some kids that I'm really teaching a lot of just awareness about their articulators and their mouth so that they just even know where their tongue is in their mouth and how they're holding it where they're how they're shaping it um, getting them to have control over the shape of their tongue and the placement of their tongue so yes we're, we're we're looking at things like uh well well first and foremost we always are considering the airway also so we're trying to look at the root of the problem as well but once some other things are um considered and being addressed Uh, When we're looking specifically at the mouth, we are looking at that open mouth posture of trying to teach the the child or the individual where the tongue should be resting in the mouth. We have to make sure that the hard palate where we want the tongue to rest is wide enough. So they need to have enough space uh, in their mouth for the tongue to rest up there. Because sometimes kids or adults have such narrow palates, it's really hard for them to find that good resting posture. I always say that we have to have room in the garage for the car. And so if we don't, and if that's a problem, then, you know, we need to be tapping into orthodontics because maybe they need a palatal expansion before we're able to do some of our work too. We're looking at um, what are the lips doing? Are the lips, you know, long enough and strong enough and able to maintain closure or, Do we have restriction there? Uh, Do we have limited movement? Do we have some drooling? Do we have good saliva control and awareness? Do we have, there's a lot of work um, and consideration for the jaw. So do we have, are we able to keep the jaw stable and move the tongue in separate directions and in all different planes. Because a lot of kids, and, and this comes into speech too, with uh, kids with um, unintelligible speech, a lot of times we need to look at the jaw and make sure the jaw is strong enough and that we have disassociated movements between the tongue and the jaw. So um, we, we look at those kinds of things, we look at the tongue posture, we look at the tongue range of motion, we you know have to kind of um reprogram that motor pattern you know they're used to swallowing a certain way so we need to change that and relearn a new or sorry learn a new motor pattern and then um so after some you know some different steps of doing those kinds of things then typically the last stage that we work with in the whole process if there are speech errors Uh, then we're addressing the articulation errors also, because it makes sense to make sure the tongue has learned to sit in the right place. When that happens, it's a lot easier for the tongue to be in a ready position to make all the different sounds, including S, S, H, Z, R, L,
0: you know, those kinds of sounds. Right. Wow. Wow. It's way more than what I thought it was and really fascinating to hear you know, how all of that is intertwined and and affects feeding and swallowing and speech and all of those areas and correcting it, building that awareness, like you said, reestablishing the positioning, the resting posture, what a difference it makes. It's really fascinating. and And you mentioned, you know, like if a kid has a very narrow palate, you might need to then call in, you know, the orthodontist. So it sounds to me like this is kind of a team approach and I think you mentioned that in the beginning um that involves sometimes you get referrals from dentists or orthodontist and and so you all our work ENT's might send a kiddo your way. So and it sounds to me like sometimes you might get a kiddo and then think they need to go see the ENT or the orthodontist before you get started with them. So it sounds like you're working as a team to kind of help these kids get where they need or adults get where they need to be to achieve these goals through the oral facial myofunctional therapy, correct? That's
1: exactly right, Lacey. Um, It it certainly takes a team because, you know, like I was talking before about the orthodontics or the ENT, the airway, you know, obviously I'm not an expert in those areas. It's not my my area, so it's important to know you know your own limitations and know when you need uh, another professional's opinion and help. And um, it really does take a team uh, because and and even like I was saying, even in the timing of some of these things. Um, of of the therapy sometimes we need orthodontics first or sometimes they've been in orthodontics and um they still need some they need to kind of um go backwards a little bit for the oral facial myology uh therapy because they they never remediated a tongue thrust so that's going to going to affect the orthodontic work um we work really closely with the dentist and the pediatric um, dentists, as well as E.N.T.s, who are doing the releases of the tots, also because m- much of the time, a dentist or an, an E.N.T. wants to have a child or or an adult even be seen by um, an oral facial myologist for kind of the pre-work, um, str- you know, stretching. Exercises, strengthening, range of motion, some of those things before they will do a a lingual release or a release of the restricted frenulum. Mm -hmm. So that um, after the release is performed, then we still follow up with therapy, also. But um, people tend to think that it, it does make the results a little bit better when people can be uh, prepared and start on a program prior to having a tongue tie released or a lip tie released.
0: That makes sense. And just to touch back on the orthodontics thing, how you said some kids will have go through a round of orthodontics, but if the tongue thrust wasn't corrected before the orthodontics, then the teeth go back to their original position sometimes, or they don't stay in the position. Is that what you're kind of saying there? Yes,
1: that's right. And, and I've actually had a case where um, a teenage girl uh, approaching her young, young 20s had already been through two rounds of braces. So what happens is the braces, you know, the hardware can fix the alignment of the teeth fine. Um, but if you don't fix the root of the problem of what the tongue is doing and where it's being held, once the braces come off. If those continued pressures remain the way they were, and if the tongue is still um, doing the movements that it was before, it, the teeth are going to move again once the braces are off. And they can start moving within like four to six weeks, even after the braces come off. Oh, my heart So breaks. Oftentimes, yeah. So I've, I've ha- I have had a girl who had been through braces. She went through braces. They came off. Her teeth shifted again. Um, braces back on. They came off, shifted once again, and then finally, you know, the orthodontist said, okay, hold on, something's wrong here. We need, to, we need to fix the root of the problem of how the tongue is functioning, what the mouth posture is doing before we will go through this again.
0: Yeah. I Feel bad for her. I feel bad for whoever was paying for those rounds of braces. Exactly, right? And having two children in braces right now, I feel that pain. And you know, just think about the, all these kiddos that were just blamed for not wearing their retainers when their braces come off, when really maybe it's something like this that they needed more than just a retainer to hold their teeth in place. I feel bad for them too. You're exactly right. So,
1: yeah, you're exactly right. So, you're going to look at your kids' mouths a little different now,
0: yeah, right? Not yeah. jumping conclusions and blame them quite so quickly, maybe. So, okay. All right. So, okay. So you're saying orofacial myofunctional therapy is appropriate for four years of age and up, sometimes even a little older than four because of the cognitive skills, the attention, you know, that it requires to participate in the, in the, the exercises or the awareness activities you're asking your patient to do. So, okay. So we have in our audience, a lot of early intervention providers, just being EI providers ourselves with that age, that age population in mind, is there anything relating to orofacial myofunctional therapy uh, that we should be looking for? Is there anything that is, is done in the younger EI population that, possibly contributes to orofacial myofunctional disorders down the road? What should we be aware of? What should we be looking for as EI providers?
1: Yes, yes, there are things. Um, So obviously in the really young ones and the the infants, they're not talking yet. So we're not going to hear the speech uh, articulation errors yet, but we can keep our eye out for some red flags that may indicate an OMD later or contribute to an OMD later. So uh, some of the things might be uh, an open mouth posture, um, noisy breathing, um, excessive drooling. So we all know, you know, kids go through, infants go through stages of drooling, but it shouldn't last, you know, forever. And it should only be, you know, during periods of, um, teething and things as they start to get older. But if they're always like, say, if they always have the corners of their mouths are always wet, you know, you know, we, we have some of those kids who we just, the, the saliva just kind of sits at the corners all the time. They're wet. They might not be over drooling. Um, but that, or definitely the ones who are drooling, you know, their shirts are wet oftentimes. Um, that's an indication that they probably have an open mouth posture a lot of times. They might have a low forward tongue carriage that you can see. So they might be breathing like their rest posture when they're playing. Um, You can, if you look over their lips are apart, you know, their mouth is kind of hanging open or their tongue is sitting right at their teeth, right at the edge of their teeth or eat, like you said earlier, even between the teeth a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, We should always be cognizant of their sleeping as well. So, you know, kids should be able to get good sleep. They shouldn't be really noisy breathers during their sleep, nobody, uh, kids or adults should be snoring. You know, there, there might be times of particularly with congestion or a cold or something like that, but that should be, you know, short-lived and transient. So otherwise we should be uh, sleeping soundly, not really restless, all over the bed all the time, um, mouth closed, no snoring. That would be the ideal thing. If we don't have that, that might be a red flag for something that we need to take a look at. Um, difficulty with bottle feeding or eating, um, and that would be with bottle feeding, breastfeeding, liquids or solids, Uh, prolonged, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but prolonged thumb sucking or digit sucking or uh, prolonged pacifier use, really. Um, I know that's kind of bounced back and forth a lot of how long should kids be sucking their thumbs or be able to use a pacifier for me. I think sometimes thumb sucking and pacifier use serves a purpose for kids. And I am not anti thumb or digit sucking or, or pacifier. I think personally, I think I I prefer a pacifier over thumbs and fingers because I just think it's easier to get rid of down the road. But, um, you know, and generally I know there are some recommendations, um, to start getting rid of that by six months. There are other dentists who, have you know, who aren't as worried about it until later and don't feel like it affects the dentition until later. But I think just kind of as a ballpark or general rule, if we can ballpark by getting that stuff out of the mouth by around one year of age, I think that's probably smart to do. And I didn't mention, actually, let me throw in there um, sippy cups and the spout cups as well. Mm-hmm. In feeding therapy, I just, I don't even use those at all. So I recommend parents not use that type of cup at all. But that's another thing that can just be in the way of where the tongue is sitting in the mouth. And that's the problem. Uh, Well, that's one of the problems actually with the prolonged use of these things is that they are taking the place of where the tongue should be sitting. So that's one of the issues. And, you know, here I'm getting on my soapbox of pacifiers and thumbs. But, um, you know, I, I really think that pacifiers in particular, or, or thumb sucking, should be used as a tool for a kid. Like, mm-hmm. if, you know, some of them need it for self-soothing, and it's very beneficial. And that's okay. Um, the problem is, I think, when, when I see kids out and... It's like parents are talking to other adults, not paying attention. The kid kind of whines, and the parent just automatically, really without thinking, grabs the pacifier and sticks it in the kid's mouth. Yeah. Just because, and it's the same thing we do like with snacks sometimes, and goldfish crackers and yeah. things. Like, hey, they they whimper or whine, and then we we feed them something or we give them the pacifier. And I mean, Lacey, you know well as a speech pathologist that. I, you know, sometimes that stuff just gets in the way with speech development. I've seen kids talk around, I'm sure you have too, talk around pacifiers. So the pacifier stays in their mouth for hours of a day and they're talking around it. Well, you know, and with not very clear speech, I might add. So it really should be used when necessary. For example, self-soothing, or do we need it to help them get themselves to sleep? And then once they're asleep, take it away or, you know, um, but use it very judiciously, I guess. And just not uh,
0: just use it as a plug. so to speak. Right. Right. Well, I can climb up on the soapbox with you when it comes to pacifiers and sippy cups, just because, um, you know, I've observed all those things that you just talked about with the pacifiers and sippy cups and, and just to kind of, you know, explain a little bit further so when that pacifier is in the child's mouth it's kind of holding down the tongue tip correct like if when it's there it's not allowing the tongue tip to to lift up and to freely move as it should same thing with the heart like the hard spouted sippy cups it kind of positions the sippy cup spout is positioned in the same places like a pacifier would be and it just restricts the tongue movement doesn't allow the tongue tip to lift up as it should um, and and when they're just holding those in their mouth all the time then that tongue doesn't have the ability to move freely and and continue to develop you know the proper uh, movement it needs for feeding skills down the road or tongue tip elevation for articulation of particular sounds down the road so yeah it and I've heard different recommend recommendations too for when to wean from the pacifier. Um, I believe the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends in the second six months of life. So they want the pacifier wean between six months and a year. I personally, with my own children, tried to take it between 15 and 18 months, which is a little later than than some speech pathologist or certainly pediatricians would recommend. I've seen where dentists will recommend later because the research for the, you know, how the American Academy uh, Dental, ADA, American Dental Academy is, um, states that any movement of the dentition will spontaneously correct if the pacifier is taken away. I believe it's by age three, maybe by age four, but so they don't push parents to wean the child from the pacifier until preschool years because any movement of the teeth should spontaneously correct. So yeah, it's, you get different recommendations from different places, but my bottom line, when I talk to parents about the pacifier is, and Kelly, let me know how you feel about this. There, you know, in the beginning it's needed for comfort, for soothing, obviously it's needed for nutritional, not the pacifier, but the sucking reflex is for nutritional reasons. And that's how the baby first knows how to comfort themselves. But I would say maybe around 12, 15 months, 18 months, then they start having a, a, like a social emotional attachment to the pacifier and then getting it away from them, I believe is even harder because they don't need it for, you know, necessarily for that self-soothing. They should by then know how to soothe themselves in other ways or fall asleep, you know, independently. Um, without it. But yeah, once that if that's their only comfort item, that pacifier or that sippy cup even, then it becomes harder, you know. So you I also recommend to parents go ahead and establish a second comfort item now, in addition to the pacifier or sippy cup, so that when you take that pacifier or sippy cup or try to wean them from their finger sucking or thumb sucking, they've got a backup comfort item because they're gonna need it. And if all they have is what you're trying to take away, it's gonna be, you know. It's going to be harder on everyone in the long run. But
1: I agree with you completely um, with everything you said there. I definitely agree. And 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 then, you know, past that that time period where you're talking about where it becomes more of a social emotional thing, um, I, we're not using it as that tool anymore, you know, it, it has become, it, it has a different purpose now. And I think you're right, like, let's catch it before that. Let's catch it before it becomes just kind of this plug, or the habit, you know. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and, and typically, I mean, I would have to say 95 plus percent of the time, um, when I'm working with parents and we have the issue of a pacifier and i am recommending that we start you know start considering getting rid of it let's come up with a plan to get rid of it they are the ones more worried about (laughs) about the process they think it's going to be terrible um we talk about we talk through it we have lots of different um, avenues to try different things to try but usually the fear is much worse than actually just getting rid of it. Yes. I mean, I, I don't know what you find, but, um, typically the, the parents come back when, when, and I make sure, you know, I tell them everybody has to be on board with this. Everybody has to be ready. Cause if mom's ready, but dad's not, or, you know, something like that, don't do it. It's yes. not worth it. Cause it's just, you're going to fall back and it's just not going to be good. And so, but when everybody's on board and we pick, a weekend or we pick one week and just go at it, they almost always come back and say, oh, you know what? It wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. We had two or three nights, you know, two or three hard nights or, you know, I I don't think I've ever heard any more than three or four actually from feedback from my folks and it was done and it was over.
0: Yeah. Same thing. I've experienced the parents are more fearful and dread it more, you know, than, than, and it's really not that bad in the long run. It's just kind of taking that step and initiating it. And I agree with you. You, you have to make sure you get all the pacifiers out of the house because baby will find that one that's in the bottom of the toy box. (laughs) And then all your hard work is out the window. So you got to make sure you get all the pacifiers out and everybody's on the same page. And I just want to throw in here too: never, never, ever cut the pacifier. And for the reason for that is, um, and I know some parents will say they've done that and that's what works because then the child can't get a latch on the pacifier and suck it and they don't get the same satisfaction and comfort. However, pacifiers, when they are manufactured, they go, go through what's called a pull test. So the nipple is by a by machine is pulled at different pressures and, and it has to pass that pool test so that it doesn't rip apart or fall apart or come apart in the baby's mouth and, and cause a choking hazard. So then when you cut that nipple, you compromise um, its ability to withstand any pull from the child's mouth and the child, if you cut it, it, they may get a piece off and then end up choking. And, you know, we would, gosh, that would be a horrible tragedy. So um, I actually, I cringed a little bit the other day because I saw another, um, another therapist recommending that as a strategy. And I just want to let everyone know out there, please don't do that. If you're a parent yourself and, and if you're a therapist, please don't recommend that because it's really unsafe. Um, and again, we just wouldn't want something horrible like that to happen. There's lots of other strategies though, that, um, you know, an SLP can share with you, your pediatrician, I'm sure would have ideas. Other EI therapists have plenty of ideas because it's something that we deal with a lot in our field. And we have lots of good strategies that can work, but that is definitely one that we do not recommend. So I just wanted to throw that out there
1: as a that warning. is that's great, Lacey. Thanks for sharing that information.
0: Yes. Okay. All right. So so let's say we have a kiddo in EI and they are snoring and they do have that open mouth posture. They maybe are drooling. So so what do we do with that? Who do we do we reach out to the ENT? Do we reach out to the pediatrician? Like what possibly could be going on that maybe needs to be addressed? More, you know, from our observation of those things?
1: When we see a child that presents like that, um, there are several things that we need to consider. Now, obviously, there are some diagnoses uh, that we know have low tone or hypotonia as a characteristic. So, you know, for example, the, um, you know, Down syndrome, of course, and a lot of different syndromes have low tone that goes along with it most of the time. And so, with that in and of itself, just that tone in and of itself is going to, you know, work on the mouth as well and the tongue. And so kids, well, we all are fighting against gravity every day. (laughs) Some of us better than others, but uh, kids are too with their mouths. And when they have low tone, they're really having to fight against gravity, you know, extra hard to keep their mouths closed. And so we often see that open mouth posture. So the open mouth posture could be just due to some differences in muscle tone. Okay. Um, and however, we still want to address that. We still want to work on that. But before I go like headstrong and diving into, okay, let's try to see if they can keep their lips closed for a couple minutes or, you know, really push that issue. I definitely want to check out airway first and make sure that there's no obstructions because if you have large tonsils or if you have large adenoids or if you have restriction in the nasal passages or different things like that going in the airway, of course, you're going to open your mouth to breathe, right? Because that's just, that's the smart way to do it. You know, it it would be dumb to try to keep my lips closed and have trouble breathing through my nose and, and, um, and struggle that way. So of course they're going to open their mouth and breathe that way. So I just, I think it's good to, um, that might be a good referral to a pediatric ENT or ear, nose, and throat doctor to really assess the airway or to rule out any physical problems or obstructions like that. Uh, that and that's also related to the sleep issue too. You know, we could have sleep apnea going on, things like that, if there are airway issues. Um, as far as the first step, I think it, it depends on how you work really and what your relationship is of how you refer out. So some might punt them back to the pediatrician first. Some might go directly to ENT. I think that varies on the families also and sometimes even the insurance coverage that they have of sure. where they go first and so forth, because some need referrals and some don't. Um, but just for that problem in general, if I'm I'm looking at an open mouth posture, I'm trying to figure out why are they breathing that way? I'm just trying to go through a list and figure out some of the reasons why. And definitely airway obstruction or airway issues might be one of them. And I can't rule that out myself, of
0: course. So I
1: need another professional to do that.
0: Right. So back to that team approach that we yeah. talked about earlier you know, with oral facial myofunctional disorders, it's not just the SLP, it's the SLP, the ENT, the orthodontist, the dentist, a whole team that can be working with these kids. Okay. So what I'm hearing you say as EI um, therapists, speech language pathologists, especially because we're always looking at the mouth. Um, so if we see a kid that, you know, has that open mouth posture, the drooling, the tongue thrusting, we, the snoring, We might want to get the, well, we definitely want to get the airway checked out. So that would be a discussion with the family about, you know, our concerns, then referring back to the pediatrician or the ENT. And then also as part of our role in EI, we want to educate families on the use of sippy cups, pacifiers, digit and thumb sucking, and just make them aware of the recommendations of when to start weaning from those in the hopes that that prolonged sucking on digits, thumbs, pacifiers, sippy cups doesn't then create more problems or possibly even an OMD down the road. So is there anything else that as EI therapists, we need to keep an eye out for in light of OMDs? Yes.
1: And it's related to feeding. So exactly. as I was saying before, and I probably just got off topic with this, but as I was saying before, um, you know, in the younger kids, we're not hearing any of the speech issues yet, typically, because uh, they're not talking in many cases. So that's not going to be our red flag, but uh, a really good oral motor exam with looking at the tongue and assessing the range of motion and the function of the tongue and then a feeding evaluation is really um, Where we can step in because oftentimes uh, the kids that have these characteristics of their mouth are not biting, chewing, swallowing the right way. And so we can start to intervene at that level. And um, so things like um, with solids, like biting and chewing solids. So I have a kiddo right now who's about two years old. And when she came in, I mean, I can tell she, she is eating. I mean, she's eating tons of solid. She's not a picky eater. Uh, but she came in with the complaint of coughing and uh, gagging a lot, overstuffing her mouth. Uh, speech is beautiful. And, um, and she eats, you know, a wide range of foods. However, when you really get in there and take a look at how she's chewing, um, mm-hmm. you'll see, uh, I saw during the evaluation that she's chewing a little bit. Oh, and actually, sorry, let me back up for a second. Parents also said that she swallows, like she facial grimaces when she swallows because she swallows huge chunks of food. Oh, <laughs> She just keeps on going because she loves to eat, bless her heart. Oh. Um, but when we took a, a closer look, yes, she's she's overstuffing her mouth. Now, that can be for you know a variety of reasons. It's probably a whole other topic. But she's overstuffing her mouth with many of the foods. She's chewing a couple times, and then she's swallowing large chunks. She's really kind of chomping a couple times, bringing it to midline, mashing it, and swallowing it. So she's not using... A range of tongue motion. She's not lateralizing um, the food side to side with her tongue. Mm -hmm. Um so there were so are things just in watching her eat and swallow that I can see where she's you know headed with this. So we're intervening now. We're working on chewing, we're working on the jaw strength, moving, having her move her tongue, move the food side to side, chew it longer before she swallows so she can learn, hey this doesn't have to hurt when I swallow that, or, you know, I don't have to gag on this. I can chew it up better and manage it in my mouth better before swallowing. So she doesn't gag and she doesn't um, have that facial grimace.
0: Okay. Okay. So looking at the feeding skills too, in the EI population is, is a good way to possibly prevent an OMD diagnosis down the road. Definitely. I think it's good to try to prevent it
1: and or, you know, maybe mitigate some of the things that, you know, they're not appropriate for this, you know, traditional OMD therapy that we're talking about. But um, we can start with the feeding. Maybe we can mitigate some things and then they don't have to do as much later on. Or we can preserve, you know, better teeth alignment or as the teeth come in or keeping the palate nice and wide if we can get that tongue
0: up there, things like that. Right. So kind of preventative stuff, like you said, to prevent down the road, something that could have turned into an OMD if these preventative, you know, mitigation wasn't happening in the, in the younger ages. Definitely. Yep. Okay. Okay, good. I'm really trying to understand all this. It's so new to me um, because, you know, I've had lots of conversations with you, but I have yet to really take a course on it. I'm very interested, but I'm just trying to understand the the foundation of it. And that's why I wanted you to join us today. And you did a beautiful job explaining what um, OMDs are, what orofacial myofunctional therapy, myology therapy is. um, And we just appreciate you sharing what you know with us. And Kelly, if people are interested, um, families maybe that think their child might, you know, possibly have an OMD, or if there's professionals listening that would like to further their knowledge in orofacial myofunctional therapy treatment disorders, do you have any um, any websites or resources that you recommend for that reason? Um, so. The IAOM, what you mentioned
1: earlier, uh, the organization that I am certified through, the International Association of Oral Facial Myology, did I get that right? IAOM you can find it on IAOM on the web. Um, so that's a good place for some general information to further, you know, maybe even better describe some of these things. They also on that site have a directory by state for people who are certified through that particular organization. If you're looking for a um, certified oral myologist, mm-hmm. so that is a, as a resource and, um, and, and anyone's welcome to contact me to pick my brain or ask any questions as well. Okay. And what would be a good contact for you? So uh, my website is pediatric feeding and So that's pediatric feeding, A N D speech.com. Okay. Uh, I do have a business Facebook page as well under my business name uh, or the number to my office is 703 771 2200. Okay. And my uh, office, my private practice is located in Leesburg, Virginia. Okay. Awesome.
0: Thank you. I feel like we could have like three or four follow up podcasts to go even deeper into this. It's, um, it seems like it's a multi layered um, therapy approach, evaluation. Um, diagnosis, and again, just very interesting. And I appreciate again you joining us and and sharing your knowledge about the subject area with us. Um, I know it's a passion of yours, and I really appreciate learning from you. And I again, I appreciate you just teaching our audience too and introducing orofacial myofunctional therapy and um, disorders to them as well. So again, thank you for joining us, Kelly, and. Um, we will be talking soon again, I hope.
1: Oh, well, thanks for having me. It was definitely a pleasure. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of More Than Child's Play podcast. Please follow us on Facebook. Find us on Instagram at Milestones Miracles and on Twitter at Milestones M.